This morning I'm going to be continuing a series that I'm calling Mission Control, talking about the mission of God's church and how that mission works itself out, not only in this place for us, but, but is something that works within our lives to send us from this place in who we are and in how we live in the world around us. So today, something about mission. We've talked about our mission before, and, and we've got three key words in our mission that we talk about. Love, grow, and serve. Loving, growing, and serving. And last week, I began by talking about our mission to love. So this week, something about growing, what it means for us to grow. I've never had the opportunity to go visit Isle Royal. It's one of the national parks that we have, and it's a national park that's right here in Michigan. And even though it's here in Michigan, I've never been there. I don't know if any of you have ever had the opportunity to go to Isle Royal before. You know, I say it's in Michigan, but really, if you know where that is, it's in Lake Superior, an island in Lake Superior. And it's so far up in Lake Superior that it, it is actually much closer to the Canadian mainland than it is to Michigan, but somehow it's a part of our country and in our national park system. So if if you've ever been there, maybe you know something about that national park, that island. Every now and then it makes the news as well. Isle Royal is unique. It's unique because of the ecosystem that exists on this national park island. In particular, two species of animals that live on the island. Moose and wolves. So on Isle Royal, there is a population of moose that live there, and there there are wolf packs that live there, and, and they hold the ecosystem of that island in balance. They do that because the the, the moose provide food for the wolves, because they're, they're predators that way, so, so the wolves feed off the moose, but there's enough moose to sustain that, but then the wolves then keep the moose population in check, so that they don't flourish too much and there's not too many. It it balances that way, and it's unique that way on that island. Well, it's, it's worked that way for a long time, but in recent decades, it, it's lost that balance. In recent decades, what they've discovered is that the wolf population in particular on Isle Royal has been dropping at an alarming rate, that there are not as many wolves there. So, so the result over the past several decades, has been that the moose that live on Isle Royal have been able to flourish and grow in that population to a point where now there's too many. Too many because what the moose do there is is they eat and feed off the, the tree saplings as they're growing. Now there's so many that there's not any new tree growth that's happening. And so the entire ecosystem of this national park island is now thrown off balance. And it all goes back to starting with the number of wolves in the wolf population dropping, significantly dropping. Well, scientists have studied this, and biologists have observed this and and asked the question, what's going on? Why is this happening? And wondering, is there some kind of disease that's going through the wolves and that kind of thing? And they, they have not been able to pinpoint any one thing that way. But here is what they have discovered among the wolf population on Isle Royal, that they're weakened to a point because of genetic inbreeding. In fact, within the last five years, there's been a point where they've only been able to find two wolves left on the island. 
at least that are tagged that they know of. One male and one female. And, and any pups that were born to these last two wolves don't survive. They don't make it because they're genetically weakened by inbreeding. Here's how that came to be, that in centuries before, the winter here would get cold enough that there would actually be the, the lake, Lake Superior, would freeze over from the Canadian mainland to the island so that wolves and moose could go back and forth, that they would be a, a mix in that population that would take place in trade during the winter time. But that doesn't happen anymore. Now, for the past several decades, we don't get cold enough winters for Lake Superior to freeze over like that. The result has been for almost the last century now that the moose and the wolves that live on Isle Royal are contained to just that group of animals. So these wolf packs have been inbreeding with just their own packs for several generations. And that's what's caused them to become unhealthy and not survive, and their numbers dwindle that way. They weren't able to grow and flourish because they just had their own kind, and that was it. And that turned out to be unhealthy. We'll consider a little bit more of how that plays into this when we talk, talk about growing. That's what we're looking at today. What does it mean for us to grow as a part of our mission as a church. We could talk about that in so many ways, growth, right? We, we could talk about, well, we grow in faith, and we, we grow in knowledge for God, and we grow in experience or opportunities. We could talk about growth in so many ways, but here in this place, we, we talk about growing as a part of our mission as applied to one thing in particular, relationships, that part of our mission that we have from God is to grow relationships. And I'll throw even one more word in there, that we grow meaningful relationships. That's going to take a little bit of unpacking. What does that mean? What does that look like? How does that work? Here's how we're going to do that. I'm going to read a story from the Old Testament, and this is a story about a man named Naaman. Naaman was not an Israelite. He was from the country to the north, Aram. But Naaman had a problem. He had leprosy, a skin disease, for which in that time there was no cure. So I'm going to read something of the story of Naaman. I'm going to actually start on the screen here with verse 1 so that you get the background that goes into this. Okay, But uh, you may have printed in there in your bulletin from verse 8 forward. That's the story that we're going to focus on. So I'll begin at verse 1 so you hear the background. But verses 8 through 14 are, are where we're going to find something through this. And here's what I want you to note as we read through this. Think about Naaman's relationships who he's connected to, who he has relationship with, okay? Here's how the story goes. Now, Naaman was a commander of the army of the kings of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, bands of raiders from Aaron had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. 
Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. Now picking up from verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me, stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, far better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I go wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down, dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored, and he became clean like that of a young boy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Naaman. Naaman's relationships. Think about how this works then, that that Naaman knows these people, has relationships along the way, and and considering what it means for Naaman to have meaningful relationships. Let's follow through with this story and, and consider how that works for him and maybe, all right, for us too, how we approach and think of relationships, meaningful relationships. Now, if you start thinking about the relationships you have in your own life, especially the relationships that are meaningful, you know what? Here's what I think. I I bet that pretty quickly that goes towards relationships with people that, in some ways, are like us, right? They they share a common interest. Yeah, I, I remember when I graduated from high school, right, for the first time out of high school, I had the freedom to, to more choose who my social circle of friends was going to be, 
right? It wasn't just the kids I had to be in class with anymore or, or the ones that the teacher made me be in a group with, but now I, I could choose who do I want to spend my time hanging around with. And, and I think many of the relationships I had at that time out of high school, I, I played guitar and I played guitar in a bluegrass band, so I, I tended to be around a lot of people who were, like me, musicians and, and were into music and playing instruments. It was natural, right? I think for every one of us, if you think about things that way, the relationships that you have in your life, you would find that to be true. That, wow, a lot of the people that I hang around with are people like me. And and some of that feels natural because it's the common interests that we have, right? The common experiences, the, the shared values that we may hold. I remember later, my, my family was uh, at a church in Kalamazoo where we lived and attended, and Laura and I got in, into a small group in that church with some other couples. One of the other couples in that group was a couple who had a son who played travel hockey. Travel hockey seemed to be one of those things where this took up 95% of your life if you're in something like that. At least it seemed that way for them, right? All of the practice times that would go on during the week. And then every weekend, traveling. Well, they had really, really close relationships with the other travel hockey team families because that was the interest, and that's where they spent their time. Something about that is natural too, isn't it? If you start thinking about who are those significant other relationships you have, well, where you spend your time and where you go and who you're just with when you hang out in those places. Some of that just makes sense that those are relationships and meaningful relationships. They are. But here's what I want us to consider today. What happens when life becomes just that? Only that. Exclusively that. Relationships with people who are just like me and only like me and not anyone else ever. How does life go then? And considering if maybe, perhaps, like the wolf packs on Isle Royal, when we find ourselves living life where we've shut ourselves down on an island and the only other people that we ever interact with are people just like us, our own tribe, our own pack, it turns out to be unhealthy, that we lose something along the way. Could that be? Now, how does, how does the story of Naaman show us something like that? Follow this one through, right? Naaman is sick. He has leprosy, a disease that cannot be cured. But he has a slave girl from Israel who tells him there's a prophet in Israel. He can cure that. What is Naaman's response? Do you catch that in the story? I mean, Naaman, I mean, he could have gone further with this slave girl. Who is this prophet? Do you know him? Can you reach out? Can you, can you arrange an introduction somehow? Point me the way. Help me out. Show me that. But that's not what happens. In fact, at this point, this slave girl is pushed out of the story entirely, isn't she? She's gone. Because Naaman's first thing, Naaman's first inclination is, I'm going to go to the top. That's what he does. He goes to his master, the king, who reaches out to the king of Israel, 
going to the top where all the power and the authority and the influence and the leverage exists. Because, notice this, for Naaman, for the kind of person Naaman was, for the kind of world that Naaman lived in, that's how relationships work. It's about power and authority and influence and leverage. It's about using your power and your influence and your leverage to get what you want from other people. That's the world that Naaman lived in. You caught that in that opening section, right? That he was, he was a general in the army and he was good at it. So he could take whatever he want, whenever he wanted, however he wanted. Because he always won at that game. That's the kind of relationship that Naaman set himself into. So those are the kind of people like him. Naaman's first inclination is, I'm going to go to my tribe, my pack, my people, and I'm going to deal with them the way that I deal with people. Power, authority, influence, leverage. So he goes, and he goes with this entourage, right? And he goes with this immaculate display of wealth and power that goes along with that. Those are the relationships that Naaman is working with. Everything up to this point in the story is about leveraging power and influence with the right people. That's where Naaman is at. So he shows up in Israel. He shows up at the king's place. Now, it's not mentioned in the passage. Joram was the name of the king of Israel at this time. He shows up at Joram's palace in Israel, and he comes with this letter, yep, cure me of my leprosy, and Joram doesn't know what to do. He's got all the power, all the influence, he's got all the wealth, but how do I take care of this? What do I do with this guy? This is where Elisha enters the story, but wait, not really. Did you notice that? Elisha himself never appears. He's one of the two people in the story that's actually named, so you know it's important, but he never actually walks in, ever. He sends a message, right? So I put this in today's world. Think about how this would work for you today. That Naaman shows up to Joram, the king of Israel, says, cure me of my leprosy. I don't know what to do. How can I take care of this? And right as Joram is thinking that, ding, his phone goes off, and it's a text message. Text message from Elisha. Joram, chill out. Send guy to me. That's about it, right? That's the message. Well, Joram, okay. Problem, I'll dish it off. Thumbs up emoji. Off he goes, right? So, so, Naaman goes and he goes to Elisha's house. And you catch this again, the entourage, his horses and chariots, this was high-end stuff. Uh, this was like the, you know, the, the, the caravan of black SUVs that suburban SUVs that are all going or maybe even flashier than that the the Lamborghinis and the Ferraris and I mean it's a show of wealth that he's traveling with and he parks right in front of Elisha's house and he knocks on the front door rings the doorbell Elisha never answers though does he instead now it's Naaman's phone ding it's Elisha sending another text message Naaman, take a bath seven times in the Jordan and you're good. That's it. That's all he gets. Imagine this now, right? I, I went all this way. I brought all of this with me and I'm standing at the guy's front door and 
he just sends me a text, tells me to go away. And, and not just go away, but to the Jordan River? I mean, in the area of Samaria, where that was through, right? Middle of Israel, that's a dirty river, muddy, full of that silt. Go to that river, the Jordan? He's not going to do that. There's no way, there's no thumbs up emoji for that. That one's more like poop emoji, angry guy emoji. And, and that's what he does, right? He stomps away, angry, in a rage. I am not going to do that. So, all the relationships that Naaman had that he thought were the significant ones to leverage turn out to be of no value at all. His master, the king of Aram, Joram, the king of Israel, they didn't do a thing. And he's hardly even getting the time of day from Elisha, this prophet. So here's the question then. What are the meaningful relationships that take place in this story for Naaman? What are the relationships that turn out to be significant and meaningful? Well, it began with a slave girl was captured and taken from Israel. But then at this point in the story, it turns because the next relationship that comes in are are Naaman's own servants, right? I mean, it's, it's his chauffeur who's driving his car that turns around and tells him, hey, you know, look, you're this guy who always does these amazing things with this grand display of power. What this guy told you to do is so simple. So if he told you to do something amazing, you would have done it. Why not just do this one thing then that's so simple? Naaman gets a perspective from those who are, turn out to be the simplest and the lowly people who step in and give Naaman just what he needs to hear. That perspective, that point of view that he was lacking, that he was missing, that came from people who were totally different from him. Not his tribe, not his pack, not his people at all. But that's where he finds the most meaningful relationships coming in. So could it be, could it be then that when we live in these completely closed circles in which every relationship that we cultivate ends up being with people exclusively like us, people just like us, that sometimes we miss the perspective that actually makes us better, healthier, that we grow as people from relationships that sometimes come from people who are nothing like us, outside of us, giving us a different perspective. Could that be for us as well? You know, earlier um, when we did this whole commissioning for our ministries, Pastor Barb started us with, with these words that come from Ephesians 4, right? From him, Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does his work. That's not the only place that the Apostle Paul talks about the human body as sort of this metaphor for the church, 
for the people of God. He says in 1 Corinthians 12 this, Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many, that we have a diversity that comes from God in the people who are around us, the people within our communities, the people with whom we have contact. Naaman had it in his own circle of relationships, but didn't see it until they stepped in and made him aware of it. Right? It wasn't his first choice to go to them, but they turned out to be the ones who pointed him towards what he needed to be healed, to be healthy again. Sometimes, and not always, but sometimes, the most meaningful relationships in our lives are the ones which present us with new perspectives, different points of view from people that are nothing like us. We see that taking place in different ways. You know, I'm, just this past week, on, on Thursday morning, I do a men's Bible study, and, and our, our Thursday morning study group, we're, we're reading this book in which we talked a bit about Reformed theology, of all things. And noted in that when the chapter that we read for this week talked about something that in the book they, they named as a holy curiosity about the Reformed tradition, the way that we do church. A holy curiosity in the sense of, you know, we come from a faith tradition which isn't afraid to ask the hard questions, isn't afraid to face the tough issues, But some of that comes with a riskiness, right? A a riskiness of if you get into the hard questions and the tough issues, sometimes then you've got to be open to some pretty wild perspectives that maybe we've never thought of before or, or had to deal with before or were able to push away before. But we do that as people recognizing that God reveals himself through a body of believers, which we all come from so many different places, and we bring so much into that, and, and there's value in that, in what everybody brings into this. Value in holding it that way. Value in becoming the people that we are as God's people, knowing that we all come from a life experience that adds and brings something better to the whole of who we are together in Christ. We are one body made up of many parts. Think about that, though, as that works out. You know, I I can't help but notice that, yeah, the time that we live in now, I mean, the, the society and the culture around us now seems to be building itself on finding an island where you can be with your tribe and that's it. How much, I wonder, how much of of the bitterness and brokenness and divide among us comes back to putting ourselves on an isolated island with my tribe, my pack only, and nobody else? To the point of, I'm not even going to consider 
that other perspective. When that hard question comes, when the tough issue comes, my response is not, I wonder what the other perspectives might be. I wonder what we could learn from this. My response becomes, my job now is to shout you down so that I win and you lose. Right? Doesn't that feel like the world we're living in now? That that's how we're operating? So what do we do about that? How do we address that? How do we, how do we turn that? Well, all right. Maybe you can't change the world by yourself. Maybe you can't fix what's in other people, but you can do something about you, right? We can do something about ourselves in that. So how do we begin with that? How do we begin to, to find that in ways where we see relationships as meaningful? Well, I'll leave you with a couple things then, right? A couple of things that help do that. First of all, let's ask this question. How can I cultivate meaningful relationships with people who are different from me? How can I do that? Let's start by thinking of it this way. Think about, make a list of, think about in your own world, and we've all got this in our own world, people whose relationships we would count as acquaintances that we tolerate, right? This person is an acquaintance that I tolerate. Everybody's got it. Think of that. Who are those people? Here's what I mean by acquaintances that we tolerate. Sometimes there are people that I work with that, you know what? I'm going to, you're an acquaintance of mine because we work together, because we have to, but here's the deal. If I didn't work with you, I'd have nothing to do with you. Right? That. People like that. And it's not just work. Students, those other ones in the class. If you weren't in my class, I'd have nothing to do with you. It's an acquaintance. I know who you are, but I tolerate that acquaintance, that connection. Start with that. Who are those people? Everybody's got them. So you're thinking of who those people are. Now then, how can I turn that into a meaningful relationship? How can I take the people in my life who I would identify as a tolerated acquaintance turn that into a meaningful relationship. People who may be polar opposites. I think of it this way. You know, um, not too long ago, when, when the Republicans controlled the Senate, right? Mitch McConnell was, was leader of the Senate. Democrats control the House. Nancy Pelosi is leader of the House. Think about that. When I think about that, I think, all right, Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi, these are two people who are tolerated acquaintances in every way, right? Some things they've got to get together and and interact and work along and that kind of thing. But I don't know that either of them would identify their relationship together as a meaningful relationship as much as a tolerated acquaintance. It wasn't always that way, though. You know, some of the the history that I like to read um, goes back to way back with John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. So uh, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, right, founding fathers of the country, part of the Continental Congress, Declaration of Independence, all of that. John Adams, the second president of the United States. Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States. Those guys were politically polar opposites in every way you can imagine. In fact, you can put them in the categories of Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi. That was John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Yet, 
they had a meaningful relationship. They wrote letters back and forth to each other. They had tension in the relationship, and, and there were rifts that would come along the way at points, but they kept in contact with each other because they knew that there was a meaningful relationship in being together with someone who was not like them, who thought about it differently, who brought a different perspective, who brought an openness to new ideas and new perspectives that, that allowed them to learn and grow and become healthier, better people because of having that circle around that works that way. It's possible. It can happen. You can take steps to bring relationships like that closer, of working through those people in your life that you may identify as, this is, a relation, this is an acquaintance that I tolerate, but how can I approach that person differently? How can I begin to work with that person in a way where this may actually be a meaningful relationship? Now, I know that doesn't mean you're going to become best friends. It doesn't have to work that way. You don't have to be best buds with people like that. But they do need to be more than simply a tolerated acquaintance. And then, how can I build some balanced accountability into those meaningful relationships with other people. Here's what I mean by balanced accountability. Think of it in terms of the story of Naaman. Naaman had no accountability, right? He was accountable to no one. Well, even his master, the king of Aram, Naaman is a war hero. This guy wins at everything. Of course, the king is going to do whatever he wants, right? It's good for him. Naaman can do whatever he wants, and no one holds him in check. At the same time, everyone else around Naaman is accountable to him. You all do what I want because I need to get out of you whatever it is that I want to get out of you. Naaman lived a life where he did not have balanced accountability in his relationships with other people. Here's what that brings then. Notice where this goes. What it brings then is it brings this mindset that, you know what, I've got all the value to offer because I'm the one with the power and the influence, that I bring all the leverage, I bring the value, and all of those other people do not bring the value. They're the ones who do what I want. So there's an imbalance of value and worth. But a balanced accountability is one in which we approach other people and say, you know what? These are people who, like me, created in the image of God. And just by that one thing alone, they have value and worth. Nobody is worthless. Nobody. Everyone has value simply because we are created in the image of God. And so, as someone of value and someone of worth... You have something of value to bring to that relationship. And others have something of value to bring to that relationship too. That helps bring us from a place of people, I tolerate their existence to, you know what? There is a piece of meaningful relationship that can take place here. Because they are a child of God as I am a child of God. Created by God with value as I am created by God with value we bring that in 
as something which helps us to see others the way God has made them, with value and meaning. So we go from this place then, yep, back out to that world, that world where we know it. People are trying to shout each other down. But we go looking then for ways where maybe just one relationship you can pick this week to turn it from that acquaintance with someone I'd rather not see at all to where is there some meaningful relationship in this that God brings us to that so that his shalom can flourish through us, in us, and around us. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of your word, the way that you reveal yourself. And uh, Lord, we do have to admit and confess that, yes, we are like Naaman. That we, like Naaman, look to our tribe, our pack, our people, and lock others out. That we live in a world of bitterness and division. God, help us to recognize the value and the worth that you put into each person simply because you made them and gave them life. And may we find meaningful relationships with others that help us grow to be the church, the body of Christ that you desire for us to be. Help us to do that. We pray this in the name of Jesus.